If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. Uh, We are beginning a new series in the book of James, and so we are picking up at chapter 1, verse 1. The text is also printed for you in your bulletins. Again, our reading this morning is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let me pray. Lord, would the words of of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you? Lord, would you do what only you can do, which is to take this word and um, by your spirit implant it into our hearts that we would know that we would be shaped and molded and changed by the word of Christ. Lord, would you do that work? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're beginning a new series in the book of James. This is the closest thing we have in our New Testaments to wisdom literature. Now, wisdom, biblically speaking, is not just knowledge. It's not just believing the right things or thinking the right thoughts. Wisdom is right living. It's right doing. It's right speaking. It's the active verbs of life. And so James is wisdom literature, but here's the thing. It's also Christian wisdom literature. It's wisdom that is shaped by Jesus, and if you're listening carefully throughout the book of James, it's also wisdom that sounds a lot like Jesus. James teaches us how to live, how to be doers of the word, how to be wise followers of Christ. This book was more than likely written by James, the brother of Jesus. It's probably the, um, the, the, the oldest book in our New Testament. Um, mid to late 40s in the first century was when it was written. 
We read that it was written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And so whereas the Apostle Paul wrote particular letters to particular churches facing particular problems, James was written with probably the intention of being passed along to lots of various churches right from the beginning. And so he deals with the kinds of issues that every Christian faces, that every church faces. James wrote this letter to predominantly Jewish Christian communities, but you could argue, especially in light of this language of the dispersion, of what it is to be dispersed and to be scattered, it's for all of the followers of Jesus who are spread out all over. We all find ourselves in a kind of exile, a kind of pilgrimage, called to follow God amidst the temptations and pull and allure of pagan and ungodly environments, wherever we are placed. We are the scattered among the nations, and that's who James is writing to. This is a word for the scattered church. And here's where this is relevant for us. The church of Jesus Christ exists in Temecula, and New Delhi, and Tel Aviv, and Tokyo, and Taipei, and Lagos, and Barcelona, and it looks slightly different in all of those kinds of places. That's one of the unique things about Christianity, is how it kind of transcends culture. And so what James then helps us to grasp is what the church in all places is to look like when we are walking in the way of Jesus. No matter what culture you are in, following Christ will manifest itself with certain behaviors, certain practices. And that's what James gives us. And so we may not dress the same as Romanian Christians today. We may not eat the same foods or sing the same, same songs, even in the worship service of Nigerian Christians, but no matter what culture you are in, if you are a Christian, you will be this kind of person. So James gives us a portrait of thriving, mature Christianity. This is the Christian life in technicolor. This is what genuine faith looks like on the ground. This is wisdom in the way of Jesus. So what does that kind of wisdom look like? The opening verses of, of James, they're, they're loosely connected, and what they do is they, they start to set up themes that will be traced throughout the entire letter. And so three points this morning, as we're just asking that question from the very beginning, what does wisdom in the way of Jesus look like? And our three points this morning are that wisdom is shaped by suffering, wisdom is received from God, and wisdom is reliant upon God's grace. All right, so first of all, wisdom is shaped by suffering. James begins in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials of various kinds. It refers to the big trials of life. It, re it refers to intense suffering. It refers to persecution, intense hardships, but it also refers to just the trials of everyday life. Anything that troubles you, anything that, that bumps up against you, anything that grates against you, and when that happens, no matter what kind of trial it is, we are told to count it as joy. Consider it all joy. That, that, that gets to the quality of the joy. We're to consider it supreme joy. This is great joy. Now, why in the world would we do that? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. What's fascinating in verse 3 is how James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know that. I know that. 
This isn't secret knowledge. When you think of what does wisdom in the way of Jesus look like, uh, James isn't like, let's go to the, to the truth sayers, right? He's not saying we need to go look into some kind of crystal ball. He's saying at the very beginning, you know, you know that testing produces steadfastness. You could argue this is human wisdom, right? That which doesn't kill us makes us stronger, What builds up our character? What makes us the kind of people that we are? It's not the easy things in life. It's not necessarily the beautiful things in life. It's the hardships that press up against us. That's what defines us. That's what builds our character. That's fair enough, but what makes us Christian wisdom? It's that steadfastness leads to our perfection, our completeness, our wholeness. So right off the bat, we have a significant reality to grasp, and that is God uses trials. God is testing us in order to make us whole. That's why we count it as joy. God is involved in those things that grate against us. God is involved in those things that we call trials, that we call tests. Now we can see in our Bibles, that this is basically the story of the Bible, if you, if you think about it in, in that kind of way. Uh, the Bible begins with a test, right? Adam is tested. Abraham is tested. Joseph is tested in Potiphar's house. Moses is tested. Israel as a nation is tested. Job is tested. David is tested when he sees Bathsheba taking a bath, right? And he fails that test. Last week, Dan talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were tested. Daniel himself is tested. There's testing after testing after testing in Scripture. And so what is God doing? How do trials and suffering serve as a test? On the one hand, it's, it's true to some extent that God tests our faith. He, he, he tests what it means to, to trust in him. But in verse 3, James uses a very specific word for testing that we need to grasp here. It's, it's a particular kind of testing. It's, it's not really about determining whether or not something is present. It refers to something being perfected. It's about refinement. It's about purification. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of Psalm 12.6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. James is saying that God brings trials or testing in order to purify, to perfect our faith. You might think that faith is something you either have or you don't have. Of Ephesians 2. Faith is a gift from God that by grace through faith we're saved. And yet elsewhere in Scripture, faith is something that grows. So 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says he gives thanks because their faith is growing abundantly. So faith is something that we can possess or not possess. That's fair enough. Faith is also something that grows. I think I've mentioned this before, but, but my probably my favorite genre of TV show is home remodeling. I know some of you watch those shows, some of you don't at all, but you can kind of get the basic idea. You find a crummy home, you make it better. It's that simple, right? Here's the craziest thing about watching these shows from someone from Southern California, because most of these shows take place in the Midwest or in the South or on the East Coast, is they go into these homes and they, they are covered by faded, stained, bright teal carpet, or carpet that at one time was teal. Now it's just faded green. And the craziest thing is they rip up this teal and pink or purple carpet. And do you know what they find underneath the carpet? Beautiful hardwood floors. Like 100-year-old beautiful hardwood floors. I think that's a picture of what James is talking about. Because faith is the floor. You have to stand on it. But the trials are, are what rip up that carpet and reveal the beauty that's underneath. 
Trials peel up the carpet and bring out the brilliance of the floors. As faith grows, we ourselves become refined. Now notice what James is not saying. He's not saying joy is found in the trial. James is not saying, I know you're in a trial right now, but you need to feel joy. He's not even saying feel joy. He's saying count it or consider it. I might use the word trace joy through the trial by fixing your gaze on something else. Trace your joy through the trial by fixing your gaze on God's faithfulness, on his endurance. Joy, and I would add wisdom, is found in detaching your heart from this world and fixing it on the rock that is Christ. In verse 12, James circles back to the theme of trials when he writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So every trial is a reminder of our limitedness. Every trial is a reminder of our need and dependence. Every trial is a reminder that this world cannot satisfy. Every trial is a reminder of the heavy yokes of the world and and our insistence that we bear them. Every trial is a reminder that we aren't home. Listen to these words by Alec Maier, who was one of the great Bible interpreters of the last century. He wrote, there is no trial, no great calamity or small pressure, no overwhelming sorrow or small rub of life outside the plan of God whereby it is a stepping stone to glory. How can I consider it joy when my life feels like trial after trial after trial? How can I consider it joy when I'm in this much pain? Because you are in his hands and he is making you whole. And in order to know this and to live by this, do you know what you need? You need wisdom. Well, how do we receive wisdom? That's our second point. If the first point was wisdom in the way of Jesus is shaped by suffering, our second point is that wisdom is received from God. So go to verse 5, and and, and maybe it sounds like there's a change in subjects. And I do think there's just a loose connection. These aren't um, thoughts that just seamlessly flow into one another, but they're more kind of scattershot. But there is a connection. There's a connection between trials and testing to this idea of wisdom. Think about wisdom literature in the Bible. What books are the wisdom books? You have Job, but what's Job about? Suffering. Proverbs is all about tests and, and, and trials. Um, think of Ecclesiastes that we looked at a year ago in, in, a, in a sermon series. And, and the preacher can be kind of depressing because he insists on telling us what the world is like, which means it's a world that in, endures suffering and it includes evil. And so wisdom and suffering biblically go together. Wisdom, you might say, is the ability to suffer well. Wisdom is the ability to count it all joy. Again, in verses 5 through 8, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's easy to read this verse as a simple universal promise. Option A, ask God with a single-minded heart and God will grant you what you ask. Option B, if you have that kind of split motivation, God will likely not respond to your request. It's better to hear James talking about wisdom in the face of suffering. It's about your understanding of your need for wisdom to live in a way that counts it all joy when you face trials. So how do you obtain this kind of wisdom? 
Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. The idea here is single-minded giving. Ask the God who wants nothing more than to give and to give. He gives unreservedly. He gives in an uncalculating, unwavering way. It's as if there is nothing that God would rather do than have you ask for wisdom because he just wants to give it with no reservation, no hesitation. He wants you to ask. To pray in faith is to ask God for wisdom, believing that he's good, that he will give you the wisdom to cultivate the joy to remain faithful. It's to ask for the power to trust in the promises of the gospel because as you go through suffering, those are the ways that you will remain steadfast. The prayer of faith is, God, give me wisdom to remain faithful faithful to you during this trial. Give me wisdom to engage in this trial with the right heart so I cling to you. Give me wisdom to count it joy. That's a different prayer than the double-minded prayer. A double-mindedness is not about people who can't make up their minds. It's not about indecisiveness. James is getting to a deeper reality. It's about asking with mixed desires and motives, in particular for overcoming trials. Let me give you an example of this. You've heard rumors that your company is being restructured. And there's a tenuousness to your department. There's a tenuousness to your position. What are you supposed to do at that point that you hear about the restructuring of your company? What should you be doing? praying, right? It's a test. You should be praying when you hear about the restructuring of your company. But if the reason for prayer is to keep your job in order to be self-reliant and to trust in your own financial success and your own career trajectory that maybe feeds into ambitions that aren't necessarily holy, but they're selfish, you can see how asking double-mindedly is problematic. You might be asking God to preserve your identity apart from him. You might be asking for wisdom because the trial threatens something dear to you. You might be asking for wisdom in order to rest your identity on something other than God. And so you're like a wave at sea. Now do you see how difficult that is to discern? Where does my ambition, where where does my idea of success, where does that butt up against what is good for me? Well, what's needed here is wisdom. Those are hard questions, and yet you can see what it is to be double-minded. We either receive the shape of our lives from the circumstances we encounter, which is folly, or we preserve our shape regardless of circumstances, which is wisdom. Think of the beach. You have kids playing in the sand, and they build the sand castles, and you can watch the wind take off the grains of sand, blow them away. The water comes, it washes it over, and now contrast the sand to the rock formations where the waves crash and crash over and over, and they maintain their shape. It takes thousands of years for those cliffs to erode. We either are like sand shifting with the conditions, or we're a rock that the conditions wash over, and we remain stable. And that's a picture of wisdom. James gives us his own picture of what this means, of of how we are to shape our lives in verses 9 to 11. He addresses the poor and the rich. To the poor, he says, boast in your exaltation. To the rich, boast in your humiliation. The word boast is about glory. It's where do you find your deep meaning and significance. And so James says, for the rich and poor, each of you in your own way have to consciously glorify God in the identity that you have. Because each situation represents a unique threat. 
For the poor, it might be to despair. And so the poor are to glory their way up to fight that despair. God has not forgotten you. The kingdom is for you. Your king is for you. And that's where your glory is so secure. And for the rich, the tendency is to be puffed up. And so you have to glory downward. All of the successes and accumulation, everything this society is built around that says this is the most important thing for you, this is the path of life, this is the good life, all of that has to be resisted because in the end it's all nothing. It's like grass that gets scorched by the sun and then just blows away. What does Ecclesiastes call it? It's vapor. It's mist. The point is negative and positive circumstances, each of them in their own way, represent tests. Typically, we think of trials as as just being difficult things, but trials come by way of success too, don't they? Good things require just as much intentional glorying in God and who you are in him as difficult things. You're laid off from a job. That's a test. You receive a promotion with a raise. That's a test. You fail an exam in school. That's a test. You ace the exam and you get on honor roll. That's a test. You lose a big chunk of your retirement through some questionable money management. That's a test. You are an early investor in Tesla. That's a test. Wisdom is finding your stability in God so that you aren't crushed by despair or puffed up by success. All right, so wisdom is shaped by suffering. How do we do that? We have to ask for wisdom. It's received by God. And then thirdly, our last point is that wisdom is reliant upon God's grace. Everything that occurs in our life is shaping shaping us. God is the author of our lives. And so in our struggle and failure, it's easy to blame God when things aren't going well. That's why James addresses this very point in verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right, key distinction James points out for us. God tests us, but he does not tempt us. Key distinction, God tests us, but he does not tempt us. God brings the circumstances into our lives, but those circumstances will give way to sin only because the sin already is there in our hearts. It's already at work. Good things come into our lives, and they promise to fulfill us more than God, and we say, like, that sounds good. That sounds great. Let's go for that. Hard circumstances come into our lives, and we blame God. God, you're the reason I am this way. Either way, our desire bends away from God towards something else. And James says, your heart becomes pregnant with sin where before it only had the seeds and it will grow and it will mature in your life. And if something doesn't stop that growth, it will lead to death. Every sin in your life, every sin in my life traces back to our hearts and not our circumstances. Circumstances bring the conditions for growth. So let's say you're trying to grow a fruit tree. You need the right conditions, right? You need the right climate. You need water. You need sunlight. Uh, But the tree will only grow if the seed is there. Makes sense, right? 
no matter how much it rains or how much the sun shines or how nutrient-rich the soil is, the fruit will not grow unless the seed is there. And James says the seeds of sin are found in our hearts. This is so important. We can't blame God when the tests reveal our weakness because we're the ones that are providing the weakness. We can't blame God when the tests bring forth sinful behavior and sinful thoughts and desires because we are the ones who provide the sin. It's hard to read this passage, everything that we've looked at so far, from the trials to needing wisdom single-mindedly to this idea of, of sin being found in our hearts. It's hard to read all of this without feeling a little helpless and convicted and overwhelmed. We don't count it all joy when trials come. What do we do? Hopefully we pray, and if we do pray, we're praying for the trials to stop. Our prayers aren't for wisdom or for hearts and desires to bend toward the heart of God. I just want the trial over. I just want the problem resolved. And when that doesn't happen, then what, what, it just becomes easy to, to become prayerless. When that doesn't happen, it, so easily we just become bitter and resentful toward our circumstances, which always means that we are becoming bitter and resentful to the one who has provided those circumstances, God. So many of these tests, in large part, reveal weakness more than anything else. It doesn't seem like they're making us whole at all. It's hard to see how are these tests and trials of bringing perfection to us. And it's why wisdom in the way of Jesus has to be grounded in grace. Verse 17, this is where James goes. James gives us a solution, and it's a wisdom that is reliant upon God's grace. He writes, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So not only does God not tempt us, but he sends gifts to us that are good and perfect. And a perfect gift here is not a gift that says, you know, I I know exactly what you want and I'm going to provide that for you. A perfect gift means that God achieves what he intends to achieve, which is our own perfection. Not moral perfection, but in the sense of he is forming and molding us more and more into into the way of Jesus. We have another image of conception, but it's not sin this time. It's God implants the word of truth so that we become his first fruits. Before it was sin, but now it's something different. God implants the word of truth and we become first fruits, which is this Old Testament picture of the best produce of the land set apart for God. That's who God makes us by his grace, and it's all a gift. Comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no change. It's his gifting to us. The Father gives us new life. We are his first fruits, precious to him, living demonstrations of his faithfulness. He rains down gifts on us so that we will never fall away and grow into perfection and glory. Not because of our own ability to be wise, not because of our own faithfulness, but by his will and by his gifting. By his word, he brings us forth as new creations. And what is the word that gives life? It's the gospel. It's the word of Christ. God requires perfect faithfulness. God requires singular, single-minded devotion. He deserves that. And the word that gives life is that he provides it in the sending of his son, Jesus. The one who is faithful in our place. The one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Jesus is the wisdom of God, completely dependent on his Father. Jesus is the one, we're told, who is tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. Jesus is the one who remains steadfast under trial. Listen to Hebrews 12.2. For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. He did it for the joy. The word that gives life to you and to me is that Jesus loves us so much that he counted his trials as joy. That which he felt as torment and pain, he considered as joy. That's how much he loves you. James says, count it all joy, and how often we don't. How often in our own strength we can't. And so if any of you lacks wisdom, ask. Ask to see the precious heart and good and faithful hands of God in your life, even in the pain. Let him ask God who gives and gives and gives and gives. In Christ, God provides the faithfulness that he demands of us. That's the heart of the gospel. God provides what he demands. So friends, count it supreme joy knowing that even when things feel bleak, when things are hard, and there's some of you in this room right now where you would say things feel bleak and things feel hard, would you know that God is for you? This is the wisdom we need. Let us ask God who gives with our eyes fixed on the faithful one that he gave. Let's pray. Lord, we come with the first application of this word to us is is to ask. single-mindedly, asking that you would conform, that you would transform our hearts and our hearts' desires uh, into your heart. Lord, we confess that we are people who who often don't ask. We confess that we are people who, when trials come, we spurn them. When trials come, we, we hate them. We want to flee from them. And yet, Lord, we... We do know that's how you work, conforming us more and more into the image of your Son. So Lord, help us to ask, wherever we are in in life, whatever trials and tests and circumstances that we have, help us to be those who ask, needing to see your heart, needing to understand your hand upon our life. Lord, in order to do this, would Jesus be big for us? Would we count it joy uh, from, from a very secure and beautiful place of knowing that he counted it joy for us? That he is our suffering servant. That he himself gained the crown of life for us. And Lord, we walk in his footsteps. Lord, would you build us up in that way? We thank you for this word. Holy Spirit, would you seal it to our hearts? Would you help us to grasp hold of the the truths of this word in order to live out of them, not just to know answers, not just to be intellectually built up, but especially when we contemplate the wisdom of God for us, that we would take this word and it would go out into our, our, our hands and our feet as we contemplate the active verbs of life, that we would be doers of the word, safe and secure, resting in the work of Jesus. Lord, it's in his name we pray. Amen.